when I looked at the black population, particularly within the global markets group, I thought, mm, I don't think we lack, you know, the intellect. I don't think we lack hunger. I don't think we lack ambition. I think sometimes where we may falter a little bit is culture, empowerment, access to resources. And so what could I do in my seat to be innovative or be creative or not just do what's asked of me, but be able to give back This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're joined by Sean Legister, a vice president in our Global Markets Division, newly named uh, Global Markets Division. Uh, Sean has the same name. Sean's going to share some of uh, the peaks and troughs of his journey uh, at Goldman Sachs on the trading floor and the story behind Breakfast Bites, which is a monthly fireside chat that he started to connect black colleagues with some of the firm's senior leaders. Sean, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. You joined Goldman right out of college, Sean, and joined the trading floor, and you're still there eight years later. Tell us you know, a little bit about how you got there and, and what you've been up to these past uh, eight years at the firm. Yeah, uh, an interesting, long journey. But so I went to Amherst College undergrad, where I double majored in English and Black Studies. I played football. I ran track. And never in a million years did I think you know I'd be in finance, let alone at Goldman Sachs. But it was actually the January of my junior year where a bunch of my friends were applying to finance jobs. And I said, okay, if they're doing it, I, you know, I guess I should do it too. That's how um, it all starts, huh? <laughs> <laughs> my first interview was actually for the investment banking division. And I was so green at the time, I didn't really understand the nuances between you know, PWM, investment management, banking, securities, none of that at the time. Needless to say, I didn't perform very well in the interview, but that led to me doing some, you know, due diligence myself and figuring out what is what. I ended up reapplying to the securities division, got the internship, interned, and it was actually through one of the networking events where I met my now boss. So I was afforded an opportunity to come and join what was then Global Institutional under Craig Delizia. And for the last eight years, I've been within the sales trading capacity. And I've been with MAPS Multi-Asset Platform Sales, which is the team I'm on now since inception. Cool. So before we go a little deeper on Breakfast Bites and the, the, the fireside chat that you organize, what do you, what do you hope to get out of sharing your story on this podcast? A lot. Um, but, but it's really cool because I genuinely appreciate you all even thinking of me to be here. Like, I, I get it, right? It's Black History Month, and to have, you know, a Black vice president could lead people to think one thing or the other. But if anything, I hope this becomes a lighthouse and just opens a door for many other people to tell their own personal story. And it's actually interesting, last night, I was talking to my eldest brother's girlfriend, and she sent me a quote, something completely unrelated, but as I was thinking about today, it really resonated with me. And it said, one day you will tell your story of how you've overcome what you're going through now, and it will become a part of someone else's survival guide. And it pierced me because hopefully in me telling my story now, or at least some of it, it can open the door for other people to realize that it doesn't necessarily matter how you start. It matters a lot more how you bounce back or how resilient you are and how you figure things out in a firm like this or anywhere, quite frankly. That's really cool. How did you think about coming to work at Wall Street? I mean, obviously it started off somewhat randomly, but um, you were an English major, you know, like what what made you think finance would be interesting or, or why did you apply other than just everyone else was doing it? So what I loved and love about being an English major and Black Studies major is the ability to articulate a thought. And I love surrounding myself with really, really smart people 
who may have a different skill set because what I've learned here or even in school really, but you can be the smartest person in the room. But if you can't get others to understand what you're thinking or how to articulate that thought, it may not actually hit the way you want it to. And so for me, finance, particularly on the trading floor, from what I had heard, was an incredibly you know collaborative environment and it's very fast paced and the cadence is quick and you can have big wins. That was all stuff that I was very used to in some regards, having played sports for the majority of my life. And so just being able to try something completely foreign at the time to me and figure out if I could really hold my own here was kind of what led me there. So we, we were chatting the other day and you were talking about how varied, how many different types of black experiences there are. You grew up in, in Westchester, which is a you know, nice part of the world, right? But child of Jamaican immigrants. So um, <clears throat> how did being Jamaican influence uh, you know, your identity? A lot. So I I love Jamaica. Reggae is my favorite type of music. Jamaican food is my favorite type of food. Seeing my mom and hearing some of the stories she told me about how she grew up, the work ethic was always something that she instilled in me. Education was really important. And I think going home to Jamaica every year and seeing my family was or is incredibly important to me because having worked on Wall Street for the last eight and a half years, you know, I've seen exorbitant amounts of wealth, but going home and again, seeing my family members, it's 2020 and my grandmother doesn't have running water. So there are elements of understanding, you know, my family's humble beginnings that kind of keeps me grounded and keeps me pretty humble. I can't imagine that the transition, all these transitions in your life were super smooth all the time. I mean, it's hard for anyone, but talk in a couple words how you describe your early days on on the trading floor. Uh, brutal, self-induced, and overcompensate. And I say that because when I got here from Amherst College, I suffered from massive imposter syndrome. And again, here I was, this athlete from Amherst College who was black, who looked around and didn't necessarily see a ton of people like me. And the ones who were, you know, went to Ivy League schools and studied finance or math or economics. And again, there was just this element of a fish out of water. And there was an element of, as I said, do I belong here? What am I doing? Can I hold my own? But I think in one, hearing their stories, having a ton of incredible mentors, and just having people who believed in me really got me through some of those early difficult times. Mm -hmm. And what does imposter syndrome mean to you? It means not feeling like you belong, but mm -hmm. I said the self-conscious and you know self-induced portion because there's an element of feeling like you're going to be exposed, like you don't belong. Right. And granted, I think I was able to truly overcome that, as I said, through a bunch of the really incredible people around me. But as I said, I played football at Amherst and I got benched my senior year, which at the time was, you know, one of the most humiliating, uncomfortable, dehumanizing things that have had happened to me up until that point. And, you know, it was figuring out how to navigate that circumstance without, oh, I'm going to quit or I don't want to be here, or all these different things that we, we all may think when things don't go the way we want them to. But had I not overcome that just the year before, I don't know that I would have been able to figure out some of the early issues I went through here at Goldman. So was there a moment that you thought all of a sudden, hey, I think I can make it here. I think I can make it and, and be a success. Or is it more like gradual progression and you just ended up staying? Yeah. I don't know that there was a moment, so to speak. I think there was that gradual progression, as you mentioned. And I think a lot of it came a couple years in when one, I had a firm grasp of the vernacular because being able to speak the language is very important. And I think that's one of the largest barriers to success. But it was really when interns would come 
And so I'd be sitting down with an intern and he or she would be asking me these questions. And granted, some of them I wouldn't know because they're asking me some pretty esoteric thing and I'm trying to cross dock. Like it's, it's a little different, right. but there is an element of when he or she would leave, I'd sit there and just think to myself, whoa, I actually get this. Like for me to be able to teach it to someone else and be comfortable doing that coupled with, you know, me having the wherewithal to build some of these relationships with pretty big clients and bringing in some, you know, pretty big trades for me. These were all pretty important elements of my growth. So we, we talk a lot here about everywhere, I guess, but about mentors and also the importance of uh, peer groups. And how did, how did you find, like, did, were there mentors that really helped or was it your peers that really helped along the way? Or how, how do you think about that looking back on it now? Yeah, mentorship is so important. And I also think people tend to overlook their peers, which your peers can provide you a ton of perspective and guidance. And it just comes from being vulnerable and having the chance or opportunity to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me out? There are too many to name, but you know, they say success, whatever it is, takes a village or however many people it took to really kind of get me out of my own way at points. And that doesn't come without the other side of a lot of people who wrote me off and said, he's not going to make it here. He can't get it. He fit into every stereotype. You know, the black athlete from a liberal arts school, he's not really just going to be able to hock it here. And again, it was me reaching out to a lot of different people who were senior, a lot of different people who were my peers um, in hopes of them helping me get out of my own way and help me learn some of the technical skills that I didn't already know. You mentioned technical skills. Big drama around the trading floor when people step back and look at it is this huge change in the way trading floors operate. And so you've been here almost a decade and automation has really sort of, you know, always been there and the technology has been a big part of the trading floor. But how's it changed, you know, the jobs? You know, people talk about robots replacing humans. Um, how do you and the team you work with evolve because of the increasing role of technology and trading? Yeah. So I think it's more a function in my eyes of embracing the change than it is running from it. If anything, the caveat to me is understanding that yes, there just won't be as many of us as there used to be, but the people who are really good will still be here. And the people who are magnificent will figure out a way to leverage that technology to really figure out how to become better at their jobs. And so if we take a step back, I think particularly this argument comes when you talk about the securities division or global markets versus investment banking. And the securities division is more known for you know the barbell approach, meaning you have the bespoke risk intermediation. And at the other side, you have the essentially a tech platform. So at the end of the day, you can argue that is more commoditized or more easily automated than a you know bespoke human business, which is banking. So I think that's where people kind of push back on, oh, well, do you really have a technical skill set? Whereas I'd argue, given our hours are a little bit more lax, depending on who you ask, versus a banker, um, if you want to gain that skill set, then go talk to someone in research. Like, go sit with a banker. You have the opportunity at a place like Goldman to really leverage what's around you. I think the fallacy is believing that and just sitting in your seat and doing your job, you're not going to have a core competency. Well, get out of your seat and go learn what you want to learn. You alluded to, but how do you think about evolving that skill set all the time and adapting to the changes? I think of it in terms of playing offense versus playing defense. And if you were playing defense, I would argue you would lack being innovative, right? You sit in your seat, you wait for the client to call, which I think some people take for granted because it's Goldman and you assume the light's going to ring. But if you're playing offense, you're going to understand that knowing the firm wants to get our ROI to a level that is a lot higher than it is now. How do we do that? 
if you can figure out in your seat how to add value, I would say at a younger age to the people around you. But when you get to a more senior level and you actually have a book, so to speak, in terms of you're trading your own PL or you have an account list, figuring out what your clients want is the way to really succeed, right? At the end of the day, we're in client services. And so if you can figure out how to cater your conversations and what you're bringing to clients to generate alpha, I think that's how you win. And so to more directly answer your question, the way to evolve your skill set is, yes, if I'm a cash equity sales trader and my client's calling me to ask, you know, where they think the market's going, yeah, I can talk to them about that, but I don't really know if my competitive advantage is going to be in talking about the market. The competitive advantage is going to be in figuring out what other clients care and the name they care on and delivering information to them, or again, speaking to the research analyst here and figuring out something myself such that no computer slash robot, at least right now, is going to be able to pick up on some of the nuances of human interaction or human conversation or understanding that when a client says, hey, I have a million for sale, they really mean that they have two million. A computer's not necessarily going to be able to pick up on that because one, they don't know the client nearly as well as you do. And two, at the end of the day, there's just something about the human touch that I think we'll always need. So that whole philosophy, don't sit back and wait and go for it, describes how you started Breakfast Bites. Explain what Breakfast Bites is and how you got it going. Breakfast Bites is a fireside chat that we do once a month, often with a very senior thought leader at the firm. And the last one, we actually had a bunch of clients. But the thought behind it was, as we alluded to, or as I said, you know, I really struggled when I got here really struggled. And it was using some of my missteps, so to speak, from you know failing some of the series tests to booking trades incorrectly to mishandling some client orders at the beginning that I, I tried to overcompensate, which led me to actually make more mistakes. But I think there was an element of saying, if I could look back, and as I said at the beginning, being a lighthouse and alleviate some of my peers' issues, I want to do that, right? Like Breakfast Bites for me isn't something that I'm doing to get notoriety. It's something I'm doing to give back and help others. And so when I looked at the Black population, particularly within the Global Markets Group, I thought, mm, I don't think we lack you know, the intellect. I don't think we lack hunger. I don't think we lack ambition. I think sometimes where we may falter a little bit is culture, empowerment, access to resources. And so what could I do in my seat to be innovative or be creative or not just do what's asked of me, but be able to give back in a pretty commercial way? And so, you know, we started it in August of 2018 with Anne-Marie Darling, who is my skip manager, and she runs all of the multi-asset platform sales business. But our first meeting was six people in a room, right? It, it was that green. We didn't necessarily know the questions to ask. We didn't know how people would take it. But here we are, you know, 18, 19 months later, and we've had everyone from David Solomon, our CEO, to Bio Ogunlesi, who's lead director of the board of directors, to, you know, the co-head of banking. It's been an incredible thing, not only for me, but I think for our population. Okay. So this may be a dumb question, but um, you started with Anne-Marie Darling, first one, six people. How did you get on the radar of like uh, people like David Solomon or Greg Lemkow or others? How did how did you <clears throat> figure out how to build on that you know momentum that you had? Sorry, Jake, I can't answer that one. I, I can't give you all the juice. <laughs> no, I, I think it was. I'm an athlete. I keep saying that, right? There, there's an element of you have to in, in a business where we talk so much about risk. I don't think people take nearly enough personal risk, and to send someone an email. The worst that can happen is they don't answer, right? And understanding again, being an well, English major. Well, your boss. Who is this guy? And why is he calling me? <laughs> <laughs> and look, I, I think while there is a very important element of that, I think me knowing my story, once I was comfortable enough in my own skin 
and understood that I was good at my job and that I had enough client relationships that a lot of what I was doing would be tied back to, you know, commercial contributions. I felt a lot more comfortable putting myself out there and asking these people, hey, not for access to this account, not for this job opportunity, but hey, can we spare 45 minutes of your time to have a conversation? Because for as much as we talk about, you know, 1GS and breaking down some of these silos, I think it's really important, particularly for younger people to see senior people and understand that we all put our pants on one thing at a time. So I would say the coolest story is probably Bio Ogunlesi, mm -hmm. which I actually first reached out to Bio last January because David Solomon presented in December of 2018. And then I was like, okay, we got someone big. We need someone else big. We need someone huge. How are we going to do that? So in January was the first time, January of 2019 was the first time I reached out to Bio. No response. Reached out again. No response. Granted, this was all through his uh, chief of staff. Yeah. And granted, I know that he's an incredibly busy man and they probably get thousands of emails a day. But months went by, didn't hear a response. And David Solomon had sent out an email. And I think this one was about prioritization. And he wrote a story about how he was trying to figure out what to do with his time. And he was complaining to his dad, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. And his dad said, you know what, David, bring me your calendar and write down everything you do on a daily basis, including the time you sleep. And so I heard that story and he basically said in taking that calendar to his dad, his dad said, there's actually a lot of free time in here. You just need to figure out how to better prioritize your time and figure out what matters most. And I took that to heart because this was also at a time where I was evolving in my role to become a pod head or wanting to become a pod head for my team and figure out how to better lead the team. And so I emailed him and I just said, one, thank you for writing this. It really resonated with me. Two, Thank you for speaking at Breakfast Bites because ever since you've spoken, it's made it a lot easier for me to ask other people and say, hey, by the way, David Solomon presented. Right. But then thirdly, my ask was, hey, I would love to have bio. I, I don't know necessarily how to get him, but I'd love to have him, which started a long chain of events, which long story short, um, I was walking out of the building. This was August of 2019. And I had a meeting with John Rogers and the following week to talk what I would imagine was gonna be about bio because he's in charge of the board of directors. And this is a Tuesday morning and I'm supposed to go meet my movers. Movers are supposed to come at 11. I get a call at 10.20. Hey, Sean, we'll be at your house soon. We'll be there, you know, can you be there earlier than 11? I'm like, no, I can't be, but I'll try to leave. I'll, I'll try to be there in 20 minutes. Hang up the phone. One of my largest clients sends me two orders, so I'm working the orders. I leave, I walk, I'm walking out of the building and who do I see walking out in front of me? Bio, Bio. Yeah. I recognize him immediately. And me like a fanboy, like, oh my God, this is amazing. So he walks out of the turnstile in front of me and I see him shake hands with a security guard. And in that moment, I knew this is my shot because for someone that senior, that successful, that powerful, to have the wherewithal and the humility to stop and take the time to shake the doorman's hand, it's like, I gotta say something to this dude. So I literally run up behind him, tap him on the shoulder and say, Mr. Ogunlesi, he turns around. Hi, my name is Sean Lettisher. I went to Amherst College. I actually played football with your son, Jeff. Just want to introduce myself. He says, you work here? I'm like, yeah, I've worked here for the last, you know, seven plus years. It's been a phenomenal experience. Look, I know now's not the time, but I would love for you to come speak at Breakfast Bites. He goes, okay. what did you say your name was? I was like, Sean Lettisher, I'll get in contact with you. I promise I'll figure it out. He goes, I look forward to receiving your email. It was just an incredible story because honestly, Jake, I think a lot of people would have told that story and just been excited to see bio. 
Mm-hmm. And so much of the time we just wait and we're happy to just be in the room, which going back to imposter syndrome is how I felt initially. I was just happy to be here. But to get to that next level, there's an understanding that you're going to have to take some personal risk. Yeah. How did you do the event? You mentioned this with clients. How did that go? Because a lot of times these meetings are a little different when you bring a client into a room. Very different. And the thought process behind having clients was actually spawned by Av Bavsar, who runs fixed sales and global markets. But late last year, he said, you know, Sean, for Black History Month, I'd actually love to get some senior thought leaders from our client base in. And he said, reach out to Lindsay Baslow and Jack Devaney, who work on the high yield trading desk or high yield sales desk. And he said, Michael Levinson, who's a high yield portfolio manager at PIMCO. And I was like, interesting. Now, you know, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I didn't know if they would all want to do it. But long story short, it was February 11th that we had these three men speaking. And what was also incredible was we had Earl Hunt, who is a partner here, moderate the discussion. So it wasn't my voice now. It was a partner's voice with these clients. Mm-hmm. And the responses I got from that Breakfast Bites were incredible because clients can say whatever they want. And that is, I think, the most powerful piece is that you have the candor of someone who's done it and is able to look back and not say, Goldman's a bad place, you shouldn't be here, but also not say you need to drink the Kool-Aid, this is the only and the best place to work, but have someone look you in the eye and say, you need to figure out for yourself what you really want, how to get there and leverage the firm, right? The firm pulls a lot out of us. It's a hard place to work because of the understanding is that we believe in excellence. And so you can't take many plays off, so to speak, but to hear that from a client, particularly one who looks like many of the people in the room, is a very, very different feel to it and presence than hearing it from a partner who, again, outside of Breakfast Bites, I don't know that very many people have the access to sit down and talk to partners on a personal level, right? Most times it's about the bottom line, it's about the numbers, and not to say that there isn't a time for that, but as Stephanie speaks about in the article she posted on LinkedIn today, you know, vulnerability can actually be used as a strength. And I think the more people understand that, particularly in our new millennial society, you know, using some of the pieces where you may feel shame or understanding that what you may take as a weakness can really be a lighthouse for others is pretty important. Obviously, with the roster of speakers you have, you could probably scale this thing to be really, really big. How do you think about that trade-off between the intimacy of the six persons in a room to, you know, creating a big, big, big thing? I think about it in terms of this is only the beginning. And I'd say you know, as someone building a business, this is the beta version. And I would also equate it to reasons why some small companies, so to speak, you know, don't take VC money too early because then the incentives, then the expectations and the passions are different. And what you're playing for may become, you know, notoriety or getting the biggest name versus actually understanding that the intimacy, integrity, and, you know, the candor are what we're really after. And you don't, in my eyes, you don't build a community by saying, hey, let's have 500 people in a room and throw paint on a canvas and see what sticks. You really build community kind of one person at a time. And while that may not be the sexy way to build, you know, it's not like we're in any rush, at least at this level. So for me, yes, I am actively thinking about ways to maintain the integrity of, you know, the Breakfast Bite session, but it actually came from a colleague, Sarah Wood, who's a good friend of mine, who said, you know, Sean, if there's a way that we could potentially get 
the nuggets or the highlights from each of these talks to a broader subset of the population, like that's really powerful. And again, I never thought about that because I was so close to it that I just wanted to keep it as a conversation. But whereas many people can paint Breakfast Bites as a quote unquote diversity initiative because it is predominantly, you know, black professionals in the room, I think the broader takeaway is that a lot of what the people are saying can help anyone from whether it's mentorship to understanding how to navigate this place to, you know, taking some of that personal risk. And again, it's it's different. I think the power is often being in the room, but I don't want people to feel like they're being excluded because you can still have a bunch of takeaways that are incredibly powerful. So who's speaking at the next meeting? So in March, we have our president and COO, John Waldron, followed okay. by Bentley DeBuyer, who is the new head of our HCM, uh, speaking in April. Okay, that's good. I barely met him, so you're you're ahead of the game. Um, so, uh, so you've been in the industry for, as we said, uh, almost a decade. Um, as have I, frankly. Has the conversation around diversity in finance changed since you started, and what still needs to change? Again, one man's opinion, but I think it's changed in that people are talking about it more. I think the fallacy is in believing that talking about it and being about it are the same. Because at the end of the day, execution is what people are actually about. And we can talk about it in the lens of, you know, bring it to my business in particular. There are a lot of companies that have a lot of hype, but don't actually drive revenue. And so when you have the hype, that's great. But then when they start trading publicly, you find out that there are a lot more short sellers and buyers because they're not actually bringing money in. Mm -hmm. And I say that because in this scenario, I'm glad that we are having the conversation, but knowing that this is a place that we talk often about culture and excellence, it's on us to, I think, lead from the front. And obviously, that's not easy, sometimes putting your neck out there. But I think some of the issues can be, again, from my vantage point, just the understanding that we talk a lot, a lot, a lot about recruitment. And that's great. But I do believe that retention is something that needs to be focused on more. Because if you take care of the people you already have, and by the way, that's black, white, you know, you name it, they'll tell the story for you. And as I said about bringing in some of these black clients to talk to us, they could have said nothing different than what other senior leaders were saying. And I think it would have stuck more because of who they were, what they looked like, and how they interacted with us. So look, I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, but I also think we're a lot farther than where this conversation started when I entered the business eight and a half years ago. Okay. So Sean, what, what kind of advice would you give to young people who are starting out in their career and may feel a little bit out of place as you did some time ago? Yeah, I would say good. A lot of people think that your first job needs to be your last job. And I don't say that to say you should also think of it as a springboard. I think of it as times have evolved. And whereas some of our parents may have been in one seat and worked at said company for 10, 20, 30 years, your first job is your first job. And it's on you to figure out and extract as much as you can from that experience without you know, extrapolating your first six months to be like, oh, is a whole firm like this? And I say that because I've only been here eight and a half years. I'm talking to people internally who have probably forgotten more than I even know. And to be able to leverage their expertise and their understanding is incredibly important. But your first job, again, is just figuring out, you know, how to get from point A to point B when, okay, I'll say it this way. And, and this is something I talk about a lot with mentees is when you were younger, Jake, and you were sitting at the dinner table and you told your parents you wanted dessert, what would they say? You got to earn it. Or another way of saying you gotta that. You got to finish your exactly. main meal. Yeah. Finish your main meal. And people get people trip up on that 
so like that's common sense. If you want something more, eat what's in front of you. And yeah. so if this is your first job, if you want to do something next, do really, really well in this current seat because it's going to make it a lot easier to get where you want. The fallacy is people are like, I don't really want to do this. I've been here three months. I know this is not for me. I want to do something else. <laughs> okay. But then who's going to vouch for you? Who's going to say he or she is really talented to get there? Okay. So this has been a great conversation. We got a lightning round for you. Just a couple of quick questions. You're an English major. What book are you reading or, or what book have you read recently that's made a big impact? I am currently reading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. It's something that I've picked up a bunch of times in haven't finished. And yeah. particularly given where I am in my career or still having situations where I'll be at a store and someone's like, do you work here? And I'm like, no, I don't actually. Um, but you know, sometimes there's that feeling of, no, I work at Goldman Sachs that I want to spit out, but I don't. <laughs> and right. so there's just an element of, okay, understanding how to not come to terms, but really be comfortable in my own skin and understand that this is still a spectrum. And outside of these four walls, I'm still a black man in America. Um, that book is is meaning a whole lot to me. How about a leader from history who's most inspired you? Bob Marley, which is funny because people are like, he's not a leader. But again, I'm Jamaican. And to know that Jamaica is a pretty small island. And again, quick antidote. Sorry, I know this is a lightning round. But I remember <laughs> I was in Tulum for a wedding years ago. And I was driving to the airport with, you know, a Mexican driver and he spoke not a lick of English and I spoke not a lick of Spanish and I wanted to make sure I stayed up. And so I was playing music through Spotify and I was playing Bob Marley and we were both singing in unison Bob Marley. So it's just crazy that this small island has had such an effect on a global scale that to me, for him to be able to bring together some of the political leaders from Jamaica at a time where, you know, it was wrought with terror and issues. Like he's a big leader to me. Best um, reggae artist operating today. Ooh, I love Chronics. I love Bujibantan who recently added jail. Favorite quote you find yourself returning to? Good question. For anyone who's on the MML, which we can talk about ad nauseum another time, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention Rob Hill Seniors, who's one of my favorite authors, but uh, he wrote, I can only show you something special. I can't make you appreciate it. Favorite breakfast food? Plantain. Plantain. Truly Jamaican. Dream speaker for Breakfast Bites? One or two people, Jay-Z or David Goggins. Okay, cool. Well, I'll come down for that one <laughs> if you invite me. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Sean. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in this Friday for our quick markets update on Exchanges Goldman Sachs. This week, we'll be talking with Aaron Riley of our Private Wealth Management Division. Thank you. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast.
In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.